been rehearsing this joke for months. Can I make it funny? Right. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the very 68th episode of Octothorpe. This episode is coming to you on the 13th of October 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comment on the previous episode. Well, we actually have a letter of comment on episode 63. Yes. Kev McVeigh wrote to us about episode 63 and said this is the first time I've written a letter for several years and we rewarded him by totally forgetting about it. Sorry, Kev. I mean, to be fair, it came in after we recorded 64 and then we went away to Chicago and then all of that. He talks about thoughts on FantasyCon and he kind of talks about what happened there a little bit. And then he talks about Deep Wheel Orcadia and the other Clark Award books and says that Deep Wheel Orcadia is a fascinating prose poem and he would have fought for it had he been a judge. But he says he would have been even more passionate about Burnt Coat by Sarah Hall, which he seems to be alone in talking about as SF. Um, So I might have to look that up. Yes, I will go and check that out. I haven't read it, but I've read other other Sarah Hall novels, which I've enjoyed. So I will go and check that out. I possibly read them because Kev told me to read them, actually. So thank you, Kev. I went on Zoom to a um, presentation or uh, or a performance of Parts of Deep Wheel Orcadia by Harry Josephine Giles at the Edinburgh Festival, and it was very good. She um, did the recitation in Orcadian, and then the there were subtitles with the English translation. Um, but I would say that the practice of translating a Scots word, including some Scots words that are common in English, like canny and bide, into every possible translation in English and then mashing them together is a great load of testicles nonsense. <laughs> I see what you did there. Brilliant. Is that funny enough? It certainly it, it echoes something we said um, when we talked about it the first time. It made John laugh, so. <laughs> Better not. I think that's the I think that's the harshest Liz has ever been about one of Alison's jokes, <laughs> listeners. So Liz didn't find it funny, but she might have found it funny the first six times I said it. So you know, yeah, I think you made <laughs> somebody somebody who isn't one of you guys caught me out doing this at a party a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, yeah, no, it's fair. <laughs> you workshop, you go to workshop your jokes with different groups of people, Alison. Yeah, but thank you very much for writing in, Kev. Uh, we liked your letter uh, a bunch. Um, and we and, and Kev also says he finally started listening to Octothorpe recently and asks us not to tell him off. We're never going to tell anyone off for starting to listen to our podcast. I don't know much about growing communities, but I think part of it is not yelling at people when they join. Um, unless you're in a church that does that sort of thing, in which case it works for them, but that's not us. <laughs> You've never been Church of Scotland, have you? That did occur to me halfway through what I was saying, and I was like, hmm. And we should also, in uh, other news or in other mentions that we didn't pick up last episode, congratulations to Raj for catching up. Uh, we're very sorry that you have to wait two weeks for each episode now. There's a lot of Octothorpe now. There's going to be like three whole days of Octothorpe soon. That's a lot of Octothorpe to catch up on. Oh, no. But I mean, if you don't, if you don't, then you're not going to, you know, get all the in-jokes and backstory. So yeah, I mean, if you if you're listening to this and you haven't listened from the beginning, that is fine. Do not listen from the beginning. <laughs> this is too late for Raj, but the rest of you can save yourselves. Our sound quality was terrible. The jokes are much the same. <laughs> we also heard from the very venerable and respected Mark Plummer. Basically, I, I said on episode 66 that sending a fanzine to efanzines.com was similar to putting a book in the British Library. And Mark points out that you do actually have to deposit fanzines in the British Library if you apply for an ISBN for your fanzine or an ISSN. I can't remember which one mine has. Um, The British Library will hound you for copies until you tell them that you stopped publishing. So all of the episodes, or sorry, all of the issues of Procrastinations are in the British Library. Although I don't know if we've... I I assume that copies of Journey Planet go in too, but... Chris, do copies of Journey Planet go into the British Library? Please write to us. I'd be astonished. Plockter never deposited Plockter with the British Library. 
Boo. And was rather sniffy about fanzines that did because we thought it was as a sign that fanzine might be a bit up itself. Though obviously if the British Library had written to us and said, send us your fanzine or we will prosecute, then we might have done What is fascinating about this is that there is one of the three of us that is the most interested in fan history and it is that person that did not bother to chronicle any of the fan history with the Library of Record in the UK. And the person who is less bothered did. Yeah, that's because the British Library's record on actually looking after its ephemera and stopping it from rotting is not great. Other archivers are doing a much better job with fanzines. Um, Yeah, no, I have a whole rant. Mark Plummer says that it's his understanding that old-time fans were fairly diligent about depositing their fanzines, and so the British Library probably has one of the best collections of fanzines around. I will apply for a reader card forthwith for my, to look, go and look at 1967 fanzines. Oh, now, yeah, no, that would be that would be a great that would be a great galactic journey column. Oh God, it would. That'd be quite funny. Oh no, but the British Library didn't uh, exist in that no. building until really recently so you'd have to be it would be maybe more difficult than i think it would be i could still talk about going to the british library with my readers cards and getting them to send the things and i can talk about the the rotunda and so on and i have to be like there must be some kind of paper catalogue in 1967 oh yes i would be kind of interested if you to go and do it though and find out what has happened to anything they do have from 1967 what quality is it in how easy is it to actually get them could be interesting well i mean i'd have to get a reader's card first of all I, I will talk to one of, I know lots of people who do have readers' cards for the British Library, much more legitimately than this. But I am obviously researching fanzines from 1967 now, so it's fine. Should be able to get one. You don't have to have a good reason to have a library card. Wanting a library card is enough, surely. Not for the British Library. Not for a readers' card for the British Library. We also heard from Christopher J. Garcia. And Christopher said that he was at the 1993 Worldcon uh, con Francisco and it was his graduation present to himself and he's pretty sure that's where he first met Alison, although anything more than 25 years ago is myth, legend and subject to hyperbole. I mean, <laughs> okay, so con Francisco is a blur. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it is like one five-day blur to a degree that... I mean, more so than like most things that happened in 1993 at this point, is it an especial blur or is it just... It was 1993. The extent to which my 1993 holiday in the United States is a blur is one of the reasons why I texted Claire a a thousand words on what I'd been doing the day before every single day of Worldcon this year. That's practice for the guff trip. But I am concerned that my ability to remember things is, is not great. I had not previously appreciated that one method of writing your trip report is just to text it all to claire as it happens so she can compile it for you it's definitely a way of doing it claire is a saint claire is an actual saint hello claire oh there's there's some foreshadowing do we do foreshadowing yes we do foreshadowing every week (laughs) we can do foreshadowing that's foreshadowing Chris also says that he thinks the Mike situation might have been due to conflict between the hotel and the union that made the costs more than we would think they should have been. Um, So, yes, I had not thought of that, but it is possible that there were some um, more political things happening that made those costs less than just buying some more microphones. Uh, And thank you for pointing that out, Chris. Yeah, there is definitely some stuff which seems quite foreign to me about like things which have to be done by unionized employees which yeah i think does sometimes involve anything that involves like plugging things in and wiring things up and i'm not sure how far that goes in terms of also managing stuff like that they clearly had volunteers who were managing like the live streams but i don't know for instance if running around with an audience microphone would be deemed to be you know something you should have a union person doing i'm just not sure how far it goes but yeah i think it is more complicated you couldn't just like go and borrow a bunch of microphones from somewhere and set them up yeah jt if you're listening we do not think that easter contact consists of borrowing a bunch of microphones from somewhere and setting them up just saying no but i mean the fact there were four microphones in most rooms you couldn't have just gone and got a fifth one and plugged it in to the existing setup and things like that Farah Mendelssohn was rolling with laughter on Facebook about the con running panels. Um, Farah said that they couldn't be filled at Discon 3 because, yes, the con runners were con running. And so it might be that con running programming has been a problem at both of the previous two world cons. I mean, I don't know whether this is unique to US world cons, but it's definitely something for future world con program teams to think about because, you know, you don't want to put all that fantastic work in 
if it's going to go to waste. Yeah, and you might get a lot of people who say that one of the things they can talk about on programs is con running, but they might basically be able to go to those items and not actually attend any because they're too busy. Yeah, I, th- I think con runners or people who are interested in con running are high risk for not actually getting to the program. And that was the letters of comment. So since we last recorded, the British Fancy Society um, have held FancyCon and they uh, awarded the British Fancy Society awards there. Um, there's not many of them I've actually read, but I will call out the, the Sydney Bounds Award for Best Newcomer went to Shelley Parker-Chan, who also got the Astounding Award uh, from Wilcon. So they're doubling up on that one. Uh, they also presented one to uh, Best Anthology went to Synopticon, the celebration of Chinese science fiction, which is definitely on my uh, to-read list. And is a previous pick of mine ah. in Octothorpe. I had completely forgotten. Um, and they also presented the Carl Edward uh, Wagner Special Award to Maureen Kincaid-Speller, um, a fan and uh, critic and former TAF winner. And lately, senior reviews editor at Strange Horizons, uh, Maureen sadly died the day after this award was presented, um, which is a really a great loss to science fiction fandom and to everyone who knew her personally. I met Maureen very shortly after I came into fandom in the mid 80s and um she was hugely influential on me. She, I mean, she was a good friend um back in the 80s and she was also... Um, very influential on developing my thinking, critical thinking as a science fiction reader, because I've been extremely voracious about kind of gosh, wow, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, before that. And I think Maureen was one of the people who really encouraged me to slow down and think a little bit harder about what I was reading and why I was reading and what I was getting out of it. And I hugely valued that. And she, um, she wrote enormously entertainingly on huge ranges of subjects that were not science fiction as well, including especially her cats, of which she had a succession, all with great characters. Um, and for many years, she's been living out in Folkestone, which feels like it shouldn't be as far away as it feels like um, in Kent with her husband, Paul Kincaid. So I was very, I was very sorry to learn of her illness and then her death. Yes, I mean, she produced... You know, great critical works, but I also just remember when I came into fandom, I must have met her pretty early on, which would, you know, make me probably a very over-enthusiastic and slightly annoying, like, 20-something. And she was just terribly friendly. I mean, even though, you know, I was not a critic, I had no standing in the field, you know, there was no snobbery about it. She was just welcoming to people who read books and wanted to discuss books. Um, I was very privileged to know her, yeah, and to read what she wrote. And and she was, I think the world's leading critic on the works of Alan Garner. And I heard one thing that people have said in, in obituaries of thoughts is it's, it's a shame that the fantastic book that she clearly had in her about Garner is not now ever going to get written. Cause I think, I think that that's an enormous loss to, to studies of, of Garner and his work. Yes. A very great shame. One interesting thing that happened this week is that they announced that The Last of Us is going to be a major television series from HBO. Now, The Last of Us Part 2 was one of the Hugo finalists in the best video game, Hugo. But this is quite interesting because unlike, I think, most movies and TV shows that have been made out of games, they're not saying we need to design a whole plot around this world that was used for gaming. They're basically saying, no, we've got a perfectly good plot here and we're just going to film it to bring it to new audiences. And I thought that was a really interesting development. A lot of people who are not me are very excited about this. I probably won't want to watch the series any more than I wanted to play the game, but you know. I mean, when you said they announced it, they announced it several years ago, <laughs> just to point that out. Sorry, it's got a, it's got a scheduled release date, right? Topical! It's got a trailer because it's now done and it's about to be released. But I mean, they've been filming it for years um, and they announced like three years ago. OK, sorry, the trailer's excited people because the trailer looks like it might be quite good, by which I mean it looks exactly like the video game. So the people who really like the video game are very excited. Yes, that is fair. It does look like the video game. Glasgow. 
in 2024 has seamlessly morphed like a caterpillar to a butterfly into Glasgow 2024, a world con for our futures. Um, and they are going to be the 82nd Worldcon, and they're going to be in Glasgow, Scotland, from the 8th to the 12th of August 2024, and you can join now. Um, so we're going to talk about the Guest of Honor slate, which was announced at Chicon, um, and then we'll talk about other things as well. You're going to tell us who the guests are, John? The guests of honour for Glasgow are Chris Baker, who may be better known as Fangorn to our listeners, Claire Briley and Mark Plummer, Ken McLeod, Neddy Okorafor and Terry Windling. That is a pretty good roster, especially I think Ken McLeod is a very good choice as a preeminent science fiction author of Scotland. Chris Baker has been a noted artist in the community for a very long time, so it is good to see him being recognised on the Worldcon stage as well. And we also have Claire Briley and Mark Plummer, friends of the podcast. Yay! So it turns out that I had been not paying attention to my email and to um, the promotions chat and to um, the Glasgow at Shycon WhatsApp group, as a result of which I had no idea who any of the guests were when we stood up behind Esther at the business meeting on Sunday morning when they announced the site selection results. And because I've been a bit busy over the last few days, it had not occurred to me to ever wonder who the guests of honour for Glasgow might be. So they started reading the guests out, and the first one was Chris, who obviously I've known since since the, the 80s, definitely. And so I was like, oh, they're probably going to be people and authors who are active in the UK. I hadn't thought about this at all. So I was very pleased to hear Chris, Chris's name be read out. And then they said, oh, and our next guest come at the other ends of the alphabet. And, and Esther did this kind of leader, and about half a sentence into the leader, and I was like, oh, oh, this is Claire and Mark. Oh. Yes, it was, it was quite, I, I clued in very quickly because I was like, well, it's a pair of people who are going to be read out together. And I was like, well, it's probably Clara Mark then, because there's no one else I can think of in British fandom who uh, meet this definition. Well, yeah, it was the point where they talked about their fan writing. Oh, no, I got it before. I got it just from the names. Oh, OK. Well, so John is cleverer than me. But at any rate, John, I was, I was, um, were you, were you up at the front as well? I'm definitely having John on my Cluedo team, not Alison, I think. That's what I've learned. Oh, definitely you should have John on your Cluedo team and not Alison, um, because I, I'm very bad at Cluedo. I just kind of wander off and get a drink and, and stop paying attention about a third of the way in, and it's not good. I'm bad for Cluedo. So I, I lost it, on and I was on stage at the time, and, you know, along with a thousand other Glasgow people. It wasn't too bad. I, I um, lost my composure at that point, and I didn't really get it back. But I do want. I was also very excited by Ken McLeod because the first British convention that Ken McLeod was guest of honour at was Plocked.com, which I was on the committee for, and I was very excited about um, Neddy Okorafor because the first British convention that Neddy was a guest of honour of was Volicon, which I was on the I was the chair of, and Liz was on the committee for at least for part of it, and so it was it was a really great list, <laughs> really well done, guys, uh, excellent. Excellent guests of honour. I don't think I could have done better if I'd personally been picking them. So I'm very, very happy with your guests. That was that was really, really good. Yeah, uh, I was also at the front. I did eventually retreat to my chair because my back was hurting a lot. But it was really good. It was nice. The announcement was very good. I had successfully guessed that Fangorn would be one of the guests in the lift with Liz. <laughs> I did not guess correctly the other guests, but I had a pretty good stab. What are you doing for 2024, John? Uh, oh, I have resigned. No, 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 no. Twenty twenty four Worldcon because you got said you got called up to front. Oh, I I've been just generally occasionally helping. They said anyone who's helped <laughs> at all come to the front, and I was like, I guess that is including me smuggling gin. But also Esther asked for us specifically, and for you specifically. I feel like she thinks we're the official podcast of the Glasgow twenty twenty four Worldcon, which we are one hundred percent not, guys. Well, but we do have um, we do have the same purple, and in fact, we do not have the same purple, but we do have purple. So you know, it's true. I only need to buy one set of like convention T-shirts for twenty twenty four because I'll just wear the same purple one and maybe turn it inside out. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think you'll find that Glasgow 2024 merchandise is going to be using a lot of different purples, and I can talk about why that is at length, but it's very, very boring. Is it because you can't get the same purple in all the different types of shirt? It's because every shirt blank company has a slightly different purple. We could be the official thorn in the side of podcast of the Glasgow 2024 World <laughs> I mean, I like to think of myself as an ally. Would you say Glasgow in 2024 also have their own um, official Glasgow tartan? Yes, landing zone it's called. Which is very fetching. If if you watched the Hugos, you would have seen Vince Doherty as one of the people who, you know, the glamorous people who hold the Hugos on stage so people can go and receive them in, in his full landing zone uh, tartan kit. And it was very impressive. If you watch the Worcester's Business Meeting for Sunday morning, which we're going to put a link to um, in the show notes because it's got like all the Glasgow presentations and stuff, um, there's a lot of people wearing tartan kit and looking lovely in it because it's a really nice tartan. It was designed by Sarah Felix and you can go and buy, you can buy a kilt uh, or you can go and buy the cloth, which unfortunately is wildly expensive because that's how much traditionally made tartan costs it's not because they're they're making a huge profit or anything but yeah and it's a really lovely tartan when they said we're going to make our own tartan i was like oh oh (laughs) but it's beautiful so well done guys no it was very good and it was modeled by sarah felix as well as vince um you probably find pictures on various glasgow outlets esther has a beautiful mini dress in stockdale had a very fetching kilt yeah, it's a lovely, it's a lovely, feels like a lovely balanced set of guests. You know, it's got some, <clears throat> it's got some guests who are very well associated with British fandom, but it's got some guests who are maybe a little bit newer and have only appeared at one or never at a convention in the UK. It's got uh, writers of science fiction, got writers of fantasy, we've got artists, we've got fan writers. It's a good set, basically. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. Um, I'm gonna have to read some of Terry Windling's books, which I have not yet done. Um, but I've read Ken McLeod and Neddy Okorafor and enjoyed their fiction in the past. I've always wanted to own a piece of Fangorn's art, uh, but he he's really good, so his art's quite expensive. Okay, so Stephen and I bought ourselves a piece of Fangorn art as a kind of present to ourselves at the 2014 Wilcon, and it has been sitting waiting to be framed ever since so that might be my present for myself which is that i should get it framed and get it on the wall like somebody who's not a complete idiot i think you should your challenge is to get it framed and on the wall before the 2024 will come yes it's the most expensive painting i've ever bought we should talk about memberships we should talk about how you can join glasgow yeah so i am a member of glasgow i'm fairly sure i owe them 20 quid but I need to work out whether that's true and then give them the 20 quid. If you were a friend of the bid and you voted at Tricon, you are an attending member now. If you were a friend of the bid um, and then you didn't vote at Tricon, I believe you can pay an uplift, um, which is equal to a Wusfus membership, and you will be a full member of the bid. Um, but that includes within it the concept of the Wusfus membership, which is what used to be a supporting membership. Um, Basically, you have to have a supporting membership to go to Glasgow or to support Glasgow, and you can't sell that on once you've bought it. It is non-transferable. But once you've bought your supporting membership, you can then buy an attending upgrade, which allows you to actually attend the convention. And if you later want to sell that attending chunk, you can do that if you so desire. There are discounts for various tiers and there are discounts for young adults and teenagers as well. The cost of a new participant is £170 all in, which is £45 for the Wusfus or the supporting membership, and £125 to actually attend. Wusfus memberships, it's fair to say, have caused a little bit of confusion in the community, despite really just being the new name for supporting membership. This is a change that's been made by the business meeting, I think, to make it clearer that everyone is a member of the World Science Fiction Society, because a lot of Worldcom members don't realise that and believe that the things that WUSFUS does are somehow separated from them and they're not part of that. So this is to make it more obvious that you are, if you're at the Worldcon or if you're a supporting member of the Worldcon just to get a photo packet or whatever your involvement with the Worldcon is, um, you're a member of the World Science Fiction Society. 
that gives you all of the rights and responsibilities that go with that. Are there any responsibilities, Carl? The thing is, it doesn't really give you all the rights that go with it, is my argument about this. No, so it gives you it gives you the right to vote in site selection and in the Hugos, which are both obviously key parts of Wusfus, but it doesn't give you the um, right to vote in Wusfus. Like, so you can't go to the Wusfus business meeting and you can't affect Wusfus in any way if you only have a Wusfus membership. And that is silly. And it is more silly. It was silly before they renamed it, but now they've renamed it, it really makes it clear how silly it is. Ooh, that's quite good. So they could start to do things like my bank or my building society does, where it sends me out a pack of papers saying, do you want to exercise your proxy votes at the meeting? And people could turn up at the Wisp Bisbee meeting with a huge handful of proxy votes that they collected from people online. And that would be awesome. Yes. I mean, you can't do that at the moment because there's no, obviously no way of doing any proxy voting. Nope. And so um, and it can only be introduced by a vote of the people who are actually attending. Yeah, so my was just like, it's, it's, it's supposed to make people feel more like members, but what it seems to actually do, unfortunately, is be a bit confusing. And then when people say, okay, so I'm a member of WUSFUS, can I vote in the WUSFUS, like, annual meetings? No. My second argument against it is I have occasionally sat on bid tables and chatted to people who were thinking about coming to conventions, and they will say things like, ooh, well, I'd like to, but it's a bit expensive. And previously, I've been able to say, well, you can just buy a membership now because it will never be cheaper. And then you can, if you can't attend, plan to sell it on to a third party and it'll always be at a discount. If you if you sell it to them for what you paid for it, it's probably going to be a discount for what it's being sold for uh, currently. And so you can usually manage to sell them on. This is no longer true because you can't sell the, atten- the uh, supporting bit. You can only sell the attending bit. So unless you really want that supporting membership, it, it's not as good a deal anymore. And of course, there are people who like to have supporting memberships anyway. But if you're thinking, I would love to go to Worldcon. I've never been to Worldcon, but they're really expensive. Shall I buy my membership now when it's cheapest, knowing I could then sell it on if necessary? Kind of that goes away. I don't know how many people that does affect. I don't know how many memberships actually get transferred, but it feels a bit sad I can't actually tell people that's an option anymore. I will just say that if you are an American Worldcon attendee, you should absolutely buy it now because <laughs> the ratio of pounds to dollars will not, I mean, might get better if some things go really horribly wrong, but like equally might get quite a lot worse. So I would say that advice from Liz, if you're in the States, is still pretty good advice. That's the Octothorpe Currency Speculation Podcast. Um, but yeah, it basically means you can't sell on, it means you can't sell on the Wusfus bit, which means that you could probably get what you paid for it minus £45. And if you are sufficiently hard up that that is a big um, chunk of money for you, that does change a lot of your thoughts around it, probably. The reason this was done was because they didn't want people to be able to buy memberships to Worldcons that didn't include the right to vote in the Hugos or in site selection, which is, I think, in theory, a very good and noble thing. Because in the old days, what you could do is buy an attending membership, use the rights to vote and then sell it on. And the person you sold it to would therefore not have the right to vote. And there was a thing about kind of the principle of the thing being that every member should have the right to vote. uh, And they've decided to square the circle in this manner. I mean, I'm not sure how many people that affects, but I think that was part of the logic. That's the nobility thing, but there was also a practical argument, which is that the business of tracking, when memberships were transferred, the business of tracking which rights had been used and which rights hadn't was a massive headache for Wilcon organisations and the membership team. And it's quite unusual for the Worldcons to actually, the, the con running bit of the Worldcon to actually come to Wusfus and say, this is a major pain point for us. And can you do this thing that reduces the amount of pain it is to run the convention? And this is a case where that happened, which is why um, Glasgow was planning to do the whole Wusfus membership thing, even if it hadn't been ratified, um, they were going to do it. But there is a much simpler way of, well, I think there's a simpler way of doing it, which is you just declare that you can't split the membership rights in that way and whoever owns the membership owns the voting rights because if it if it's if it's hugo nominations and voting i guess it only affects that would only affect the paper ones because if it's online hugo nomination and voting you can always go in and overwrite your form on the website and if it's site selection voting you can vote twice anyway i can see how that would be a logistical nightmare from the administration perspective though so 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 this is a a rare case where wusfus has done something that the 
that the Worldcon running community, that's not the wussfussy bits of it, wanted them to do to make their lives easier. So, you know, and, and I would strongly recommend that if you're interested in science fiction and fantasy and you're in this community, if you're any of the people listening to this podcast, then if you can afford it and obviously, you know, pay your rent first, buying a supporting membership for the Worldcon each year is quite a good way to get your hands on a ton of interesting science fiction and fantasy and be part of this really excellent global community that talks about it. I'd strongly recommend have a supporting membership every year. And as you know, Bob, I get to a Worldcon about once every five years. Interestingly, Cheryl Morgan wrote about Tricon 8 in her fanzine Salon Futura. And she writes about WUSFUS memberships um, and seems to think that it's unpopular with the people who are Worldcon runners. And she says that, and this is a quote, I am already seeing people complaining they are being ripped off because they are forced to join Wispers when they only want to attend Worldcon, and that is absolutely a result of the way the change is being explained to fans by Worldcons. That's a very hard Paddington stare for you, Glasgow. And so I think she particularly is unimpressed with the job that Glasgow is doing communicating this to its membership. And so it is interesting to me that you said that Glasgow was planning to do this anyway. I might be wrong about that. I think they were, though. Because I have to say that although... I think it is a little bit complex. I don't think Glasgow has explained it very well. And so I had assumed that they had not been planning to do it and had done it at the last minute. And maybe that's unfair. And and sorry for anyone who who's listening from Glasgow who's like, no, we, we definitely were planning to do it all along. John is being very mean. But yeah, I do think the Glasgow pages that explain this, they make it sound very Byzantine. And I think there are ways to explain this which make it sound quite a lot less Byzantine. If you could explain something so it sounds simple, it often feels simple. And if you explain something so it sounds complicated, it often feels complicated. Yeah. So, so if Glasgow, if you're listening to this, write us a lock. I might have been completely wrong there, in which case I'm sorry. But also, tell us what you're doing to make sure that Wilcon potential members are not put off by having to buy a wuspus, as Ange put it very, very um, cogently in Anonymous Claire. I do think it's getting horrendously complicated just because of all the kind of permutations of friends and good friends and bid supporting and so on. And the fact that you have, especially if you have full attending and young adult prices and child prices and teen prices, like the matrix of how much it costs you is really, really complicated. I think like if it applies to you, you probably know. So maybe we need to think about how we communicate. Like maybe it needs to be up front on the page. It needs to be the cost for the interested person who has like just this minute heard about Glasgow in 2024 and just wants to know what's involved. And then a bit later have the, and if you are a friend or a supporter or a pre-supporter, this is like how much it costs you. Because to be honest, I looked at the matrix of how much things cost and was like, I'm just going to ignore this because I know my friend did the bid and voted, so I don't have to worry about it. And it was the same for Chengdu. I think they had to basically redraw their list of how much it would cost you to do various things because it was so confusing. So I think that is an area where we we need to be thinking about, like, what do we communicate to prospective members? I will say, I think you're right. I think that is not as much to do with WUSFUS memberships as it is to do with how Worldcon bids are funded. Yeah. Because I also found that very confusing with LundCon 3. And obviously that was a long time before this. But, like, you get friends and super friends and, like, really, really fantastic friends and fuck buddies and all of these things. And... (laughs) It gets very, it gets very confusing. Is this something I can sign up to for Glasgow 2024? Asking for a friend. <laughs> I don't want to make any pronouncements on behalf of the Glasgow 24 Concom. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm very inappropriate. Um, but we are generally very excited about Glasgow. I will be there with bells on. I already have my attending membership on account of having uh, pre-friended uh, and then voted. Um, so I will um, be definitely there and definitely voting on all the things and etc. I am a friend. I am a super. I was a super friend. So Ooh. I think that might be the first time I've ever super friended a convention. That's how much. That's how excited I was about. Glasgow. I did that. So, for people who don't know, because I sell t shirts for a living, I have a lot of money in January and no money any other time of the year. So, either this last January or the one before that, I was like, I have, I have all the money. I'll, I'll give some money to Esther. And Liz has already said that she was also a friend and then voted. So, is also an attending member. So, we will see you there. 
if Glasgow is listening, we'd quite like a program slot to do a live Octothought, please. <laughs> um, it might be a bit early, but uh, but yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. We want to, uh, that's assuming we're still doing the podcast in 2024, um, which is... Yeah, John. Even if we're not, we'll do a reunion episode. <laughs> yeah, no, up for that. Up for that. Unless we're not doing the podcast because we've had a massive dust up of the of the sort that resonates through fandom for generations and people even if it's me on my own with two sock puppets that I have painted Alison and Liz on. Fuck you, John. No, you cannot do that. <laughs> and here begins the massive row, listeners. <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. Um but I will be charging you uh for my image rights on the sock puppet, obviously. <laughs> Liz is the Bruce Willis of Octthorpe. We should get one of those Galaxy Edge artisans to make sock puppets of me and Liz <laughs> that you can only buy at Worldcon. Yes. Okay, who wants to do their pick first? I'm going to go last because I haven't picked anything yet and I'm frantically scrolling through my Goodreads. Yeah, this is going first in case she's struck by lightning before the end of this podcast. <laughs> uh, so my my pick is slightly cheating because um, I haven't finished it because I spent a lot of this week reading a book for various reasons that we will discuss on Octothorpe later and possibly I will send. Oh yeah, I spent a lot of this week reading a book too. What a coincidence. <laughs> John, did you spend a lot of this week reading a book? Uh now, this answer is not going to make you happy because the answer is yes, but it wasn't the book I was supposed to be reading. <laughs> right, Liz, do your pick. Pick, yes. So my pick is a video game. It is a video game I haven't finished yet, but really I'm already getting the value out of it. My pick is Return to Monkey Island, which is the sixth video game. I think it's the sixth video game in the Monkey Island series, a series which started 30 years ago. Yep. When when was the first when did the first Monkey Island gameplay came out? Because I played it when it was new. See, this is the thing. I'm pretty sure I played the Secret of Monkey Island when it was new. Nineteen ninety. So I so we so we both played the first one when it was new, and that although it wasn't before John was alive, it was before John could manipulate point and click video games. So the Secret of Monkey Island, it, the Monkey Island games are classic point-and-click adventure games from Lucasfilm, which anyone of a certain age range really remembers fondly. And they had several sequels, which to me have been a little bit diminishing returns, although I haven't played the fifth one, which is supposed to be really good. And they suddenly announced a couple of months ago that they had been making a sixth game and it was going to come out. And it's the creators of the first two games, which I feel are the best uh, classic ones. Yeah, and it's out and I'm playing it and it is very much like a classic Lucasfilm adventure. It no longer has like a big like chunk of the screen taken up with verbs that you can use, but it's all very inventive so that, you know, instead of looking at things when you hover over them, it kind of tells you what might happen if you click on them. So for instance, I was hovering over a poster and it told me if I clicked on it, uh, I would not look at the poster, but I would make a terrible pun about the, the poster and things like this. It It, it is... I mean, it has a lot of fan service. I cannot really say how this plays to someone who does not know why it is a joke that there's a pirate with an ask me about loom button in the bar. But if you think that is funny... Ask me about loom? Yes. Because I played loom when it came out too. <laughs> well, that was your mistake. Um... <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Fantastic game. Amazing. Just kind of also shit in... Anyway, um, it's there. It's got it's got the same puzzles. I think the puzzles are a little simpler. I haven't had to combine like four items in incredibly weird ways yet, but I have had to make a mop from scratch, which was quite fun. And so I'm about a third of the way through it, and I'm enjoying it immensely. And it's available for Mac and PC. And yeah, if you played any of the Monkey Island games, you will probably enjoy this one. And Nintendo Switch. And Nintendo Switch, but I haven't bought one of those yet, so. And it's interesting because the first ones were developed by LucasArts and one of the things that Disney did when it bought Lucasfilm was shut LucasArts, which was probably a fair decision at the time because LucasArts hadn't done anything good for a while at that point. But this is kind of um, being published by Devolver Digital and they are doing it, I guess, because they have negotiated the rights with Lucasfilm. Um, but it's it's nice to see that kind of Gordian not get cut through because this is the first game by the creator of the original two games since he left LucasArts in like 1992. To be fair, I think the the fifth Monkey Island, which I haven't played, is a collaboration with um, Telltale Games. 
yeah, it was not entirely done by uh, LucasArts all the way through. That age range that remembers um, Mon- the first Monkey Island extremely fondly has to be quite large because it includes people who are Liz's age and also people who are my age and probably even some people who are a bit older than me. To be fair, I played it very young. I've played the Monkey Island games when they got remastered. Do you want to do your pick, Alison? I do, I do. So I, I read a book all week, um, but obviously I'm not talking about that. And I've probably got a pick for... I'm also watching a bit more of The Expanse, but I'm not going to pick that again. So this time I am going to pick the very timely WandaVision, which I think is about three years old now. Well, it was up for, it was up for a Hugo, wasn't it? So uh, it was 2021. It was up for Hugo this year, so so it was a 2021 series, um, but I finally got round to watching it. Um, people who are tracking my progress through the Marvel Cinematic Universe will know that I'm even sli- I'm slightly less behind than I was, but I'm still very behind. I thought WandaVision was really quite good. So, as you know, I have a complicated relationship with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There is a explanation of senility that says that one of the ways that you can first see your deteriorating mental state is that you can't quite hold all the elements of plots and characters in your head at once. And this has happened to me with the MCU. So I significantly failed to remember key bits about the Marvel canon that it would have been quite useful to know before I started watching WandaVision, but it didn't really matter. Um, For those who don't know, it starts as a sitcom featuring Wanda Maximoff, who's an ongoing character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and her husband, Vision, who is also an ongoing character in the MCU, kind of channeling I Love Lucy and comedy shows of that type. And you kind of watch this show, and apart from just a couple of moments, the first episode is a an exact pastiche of 50s and early 60s comedy shows. And then over the next several episodes, it goes forward in time and you gradually work out what is really going on. And it turns out that it all is not what it seems, which I, I mean, a clever reader will have known from the beginning. Nine episodes in total. It wouldn't be the MCU without a pointless superhero battle at some point, And that indeed does happen. But there's not that much of that. And and it all gets wound up in a very interesting way, I think. And there's some really good bits about philosophy and identity and culture and I thought it was quite a good thing to have on one's 2022 Hugo ballot. It didn't win, did it? What did win? Dune. Arrakis, a desert planet. But it went on as a single series, which is quite right. None of the episodes stand alone. So I thought it was pretty good and I think I would commend it to you. I also liked it. It doesn't stick the landing as much as it might have done, but it was filmed from November 2019 to March 2020, and then something happened in March 2020 that made it difficult to keep filming. Uh, so I do, I kind of give it largely a bit of a pass on the ending, because I do suspect that if the if the COVID pandemic hadn't happened, we might have seen it end slightly differently, especially stuff like, oh, what's Kat Dennings' character's name? Liz, who does Kat Dennings play? Darcy. Darcy. Darcy in particular kind of just vanishes and like it's like oh where did Darcy go and the answer is probably lockdown but generally speaking I really liked it and I especially liked seeing the kind of the return of Darcy and Randall to the MCU because they are both people I very much like uh not not Randall oh Randall Park is the actor what's the character's name Liz what's the character's name don't know go and google it Jimmy Jimmy Woo oh yeah Jimmy Woo's great Jimmy Woo is great. He should be in more things. Um, if anyone hasn't seen Always Be My Maybe, you should, because he is the lead and writer on that movie, and he is extremely good in it, with Ali Wong, who was also a writer and the other lead. Didn't we have some pick a few weeks ago where someone recommended something and then John said you should watch Always Be My Maybe? Yep. I will keep recommending it, because it is... I just love that movie so much. Okay, well, that's my pick for next episode sorted, then. It's not science fiction, though. It's genre, right? You you promised me it's genre. No. It is genre, just the genre is rom-com. Fair. But it has the best celebrity stunt casting of any movie in the history of cinema. Speaking of celebrity stunt casting and WandaVision, there's a very good bit of celebrity stunt casting that is taking advantage of the fact that the X-Men is now owned by Disney along with everything else. 
and is quite a funny joke, which I didn't get because I really wasn't paying close enough attention to the MCU. But there's some funny stuff going on around that that I think probably if you kind of are into reading Marvel tea leaves gives you some hints about where Marvel might be going with the X-Men. That's not too much of a spoiler, is it? I don't think that was a spoiler. It's a TV show from 2021 that was like nominated for a Hugo. So I think you can fairly say the statute limitations is, yeah. is up. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't think that was a spoiler anyway. But there's some really funny things in WandaVision, as well as some really quite clever things, as well as some really interesting discussions on how you're affected by uh, major life changes and what it means to be human and all of that stuff. And I really liked it. And I like the fact that it was trying to do something a bit more complicated. Have you seen Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness yet? I can't. I have, I've got homework, John. I, I, there are prerequisites. There are a lot of prerequisites, right? No, WandaVision is basically the prerequisite. I would, I would argue WandaVision is a strict anti-prerequisite. I think maybe Spy... No, not even Spider-Man. Maybe Spider-Man. But like WandaVision should be a prerequisite, except that the two don't make sense together at all. Oh, I, I thought that WandaVision was the prerequisite for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That was one of the reasons I was watching Multi... WandaVision was filmed and written after Doctor Strange was, but released before. And it doesn't really... The character of Wanda doesn't really make any sense between the two movies, I would argue. I liked Doctor Strange, but I think having seen WandaVision might actually be an impediment, not a plus. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, I think, has a much stronger reading as to what they're going to do with the X-Men than WandaVision does. Again, celebrity stunt casting. Okay, so so are there any other... Pre- I, I wanted to watch the Spider-Mans before... Doctor Strange. All of them. I don't know. Which ones? I mean, it depends how much you want to do your homework, but I mean, they're all referenced. I did. I watched Homecoming. I mean, spoilers for a movie that came out a while back, but I think we've already spoiled this on the pod anyway. But the Spider-Mans from the original Sam Raimi trilogy and from The Amazing Spider-Man are in it. So you'd need to watch those five and then you'd probably want to watch both of the Tom Holland ones if you want to like fully do your homework. Oh, and you need to watch Doctor Strange 1. Or you could just watch it because it's fine. Yeah, are you, are you vaguely aware that there has been more than one actor who played Spider-Man? Because just go ahead and watch Spider-Man No Way Home, it's fine. Yeah, no, I think, I think I, I've had this spoiler already. Yeah, just go ahead, just go and watch this and Spider-Man. And also I've seen multi- Spider, Spider-Pig or whatever it's called, Spider-Man and the Multiverse of... Oh, you don't, have, you don't have to have seen that one. Oh, boo. I mean, you do, on account of how it's a great movie. Yeah, it's a good film. <laughs> I will say, the thing I really like about um, No Way Home is that it gives Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man like an actual ending, which I really enjoyed. Because um, Andrew Garfield, although I don't think, especially The Amazing Spider-Man 2 was a hot mess, but I like Andrew Garfield's portrayal of Spider-Man the best out of the Spiders men there have been. On the count of Andrew Garfield's a really fantastic actor and he's good in every single thing he does um, to the extent that... Yes, he is. I will actually go and look for things that have Garfield attached to them now because I think he's very good. He's just great. So, yes, yeah, so I was thinking of watching... So, Homecoming, and then there's probably another one after Homecoming. I've seen Homecoming. There's Spider-Man No Way Home. There's Homecoming and then there's Far From Home. Oh, it's Far From Home, yeah. Homecoming, then Far From Home, then No Way Home. Right, so we need to see Far From Home and No Way Home. So that should be doable. I can probably, I can probably fit a Spider-Man into today, probably. So within a, within a month, maybe. I'm going to do my pick. My pick for today is A Vertical Empire, History of the British Rocketry Programme by C.N. Hill, which is a book that was recommended to me by Nick Gibbons. This book is really good. It explains kind of the history of british rocketry and why british rocketry didn't continue spoiler it turns out it was mostly the civil services fault which is really interesting but basically it's mostly because the treasury really hated the british rocketry program and blocked it until it went away but it's really fascinating it has like all the documents and stuff and the appendices actually list like a bunch of them in full if you're very very interested it's interesting because it deals with the different parts of the program in different chapters it's not the way i would have structured it i think there are parts where it repeats itself because of the way it chooses to structure the history but it's still extremely extremely compelling and i did find it fascinating and it has a lot of really good detail i think another reading of this is that the boffins did not even bother to do the minimal political work put in the minimal political work to ensure that there were people in the right places who cared about what they were doing 
No, you you haven't read the book, have you? But that's a book written by people by somebody who has romantic attachment to the British rocket rocketry program. The book concludes with the message that the British rocketry program should have been cancelled. So the book has no particular attachment to it from a it does from the perspective that the author really likes rockets but the book is very clear that the british rocket program did not make sense almost the whole way through the the civil service was sharply divided and you get a real sense of the politicians who were supporting the project versus the politicians who weren't and ditto the civil servants who were versus the civil servants who weren't the real problem i think is in the fact that the civil service after world war ii had a very fragmented structure around particularly aerospace there were like five different ministries each of whom had a slice of the jurisdiction for this project whereas the treasury was a single entity and so i don't think the problem was that the boffins didn't do their homework i think the problem was that the civil service was hopelessly disorganized on the side that was pro this project and extremely organized on the side that wasn't most of the politicians were in favor it was definitely the civil servants that were the issue Politicians are normally in favour of extremely public-friendly construction projects. So the fact that politicians are in favour of this, politicians like to build things right, and rockets are a thing that you can build and then you can put them into the sky and it makes a big splash. Like I say, I would strongly recommend reading the book before interpreting the book, but it's a very interesting book. And it it gave me a good, a very good insight into how much British policy is nothing at all to do with the party that's in power. Historically, you are right. In terms of the way things are now, so many good people have left at this point. That was the Octothought podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Would it be too harsh at this point to note the dictionary definition of narcissism, self-centeredness from arising from failure to distinguish the self from the external? I never deny it. I have never denied this. But I did like Google help with narcissism and it's all and it turns out that the Internet's full of what, you, what do you do if there are narcissists in your life and not and not there's not a lot about what, what to do if you are one of them. <laughs> The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod in Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.